um, over the last couple of weeks, we've been having some uh, testimonies, some sharing, some honest people being very honest about uh, their lives and their journeys and their faith and all that kind of stuff. It's been one of our favorite things. Uh, for those of you who are visiting and new, we've been doing this for the last several weeks. We encourage you to go back to the podcast archives and hear just a little snippet because uh, the spark is so much more than just what happens on Sunday and so much more than just the main quote unquote teachers. It really is the community and this is an opportunity for us to really highlight just a small snapshot of of, uh, the community that is Spark. So this has been a a fantastic thing. Now, today, before before she comes up, over the last several weeks, this person (laughs) has been a big fan of the people that have come up here. And I'm a little concerned that now that she's coming up here, are you ready? Ladies and gentlemen, dear Sparkers, please give it up for Grace. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. I was a little worried it was going to be silent when I came up here today, but I did not have to have that concern. Um, I'm so honored to be up here, but I want to start by saying I've been a huge fan of everyone who's come up so far, but I initially did not want to come here and do this myself. No. Um, The reason I ended up here is a couple weeks ago, um, after church, a few of us were talking about how great the Why Jesus series is, and um, Renee, who was in that group, she's not here today, but she was the wonderful person who shared last week, Um, you know, I was sharing and saying like, oh, I don't know if I want to do it, I don't know if I have a very good answer to this daunting question of why Jesus, and she looks at me straight in the face and she goes, well, we're all doing it, you don't want to be a loser, do you? (laughs) And that was it, here I am. If this is one of your first times, I'm not saying that we're a group of people here who are into peer pressuring or guilt tripping or anything like that. Um, Quite the opposite, actually. All I'm saying is that if you stick around, you might get to know some wonderful people who really know you as a person, know how to encourage you and push you to take those growth opportunities in a way that'll resonate with you. So take from that what you will about me. Um, I'll get a little bit more into why I didn't really want to share initially a little bit later in our time, so stick with me here. But... um, To start off with, like many of the people who have come before me, I was raised in a conservative evangelical setting, specifically a Chinese church in Austin, Texas. Unlike the others who have come before, though, I am not a rule follower. One of my MOs in life is easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. Um, If you know anything about me, you also know that I'm an extremely logic-driven person. I am a student of the scientific method, which means that I am skeptical, methodical, and um, realistic to probably a fault. This meant that although I grew up around biblical stories and Jesus rhetoric, I considered it all a little hand-wavy, not really, you know, within my realm and experience of what was realistic. And I was open, you know, I was surrounded by all of these older youth kids who seemed to have it all figured out. They would raise their hands during worship, be super into it, super passionate, say all the right things, and I wanted that for me too. Um, And so my most consistent prayer from the time that I can remember to probably the end of my teenage years was I said, God, you know I'm a direct communicator. If you're really out there and if you're really real and you want me to believe in you, then you're going to have to give it to me straight. You know, like according to the Bible, you have done some earth-shattering feats, and so if you are really real, prove it to me. 
open up the heavens, light shining down on me, thunder, hail, angels, chorus of angels, you know, in your booming voice saying, grace, I am God. That's what I expected. Um, The short story is I actually got that moment. During my senior year of high school, so I was 18 to 19 at the time, I was at a church camp that I had attended many half a dozen times prior. And I was dating a wonderful boy at the time, um, but he wasn't Christian. Now, in this youth camp, everyone was assigned a camp counselor who, among other things, you know, would schedule a one-on-one with each of their campers and would kind of be a spiritual mentor during that time. They would usually check in with me and say, like, oh, how's your relationship with Jesus? And I would respond saying, you know, I'm a little iffy on the whole God thing, but I've been praying that he'll reveal himself to me. And that was a good enough answer. They let me go. I go back to playing dodgeball, and all was great. This particular year, though, when I was 18, that is not how my one-on-one with my counselor started. When we were alone and it was quiet, she said her very first question. So, I heard you have a boyfriend. Is he Christian? That silence right there is all you evangelicals who know what the sound of judgment sounds like. And she proceeded to, you know, throw stones at me in the form of Bible verses. I got the whole believers do not yoke yourself to a non-believer spiel. Sound familiar? Yeah. Um... But, you know, in that half hour, I tried to ask more. I tried to ask, well, what about, you know, but like, what if, but why? And no, it was black and white. Here was a woman who had known me for two days, had never met my boyfriend, knew nothing about him except that he wasn't Christian, uh, but knew very solidly that he was no good for me. After that one-on-one, I went back to my cabin with a seething anger. Um, Shouldn't this counselor be more concerned about my relationship with Jesus instead of my relationship with my boyfriend? Um, If I wasn't even Christian, why did what she had to say and what the Bible had to say even matter to me? Is this really how Christians and the Christian faith functioned? Um, I also felt a slowly rising panic and crisis. I always envisioned that one day I would have deposited enough coins in the prayer bank and God would answer my prayers and I'd finally know for sure, I'd finally know he was God and I would get to, you know, live out the rest of my life with greater purpose and conviction as a passionate Christian woman. Um, But now that was derailed. Um, Now, here I was, haven't even having begun that journey, but it felt like I was already deemed unworthy. It seemed I was given a choice at that time, um, either my non-Christian boyfriend or God. And I didn't know if God was real, but I knew my boyfriend was real, and he was great. So what kind of choice was that? If God is really out there, this was a twisted and sadistic entry exam to being Christian. I woke up the next morning feeling empty and resigned, resigned to leave it all behind. God, Christianity, the church, the judgment, the cruel expectations. And um, I remember sitting in what was the last session of our youth camp, arms crossed, you know, lips pursed, not listening. Um, My posture was stiff. My heart and soul were completely closed off. And that's the last thing I remember feeling. I cannot tell you what happened, and I cannot tell you why. Um, As cliche as it sounds, you know, there was no trigger, um, no cause, nothing that can explain. All I remember was I was sitting there full of nothing but resentment and anger, and suddenly it was just tears. Um, A heart that was locked away just a few seconds before was suddenly overflowing with emotion. Sadness, joy, warmth, inspiration, celebration, pain, passion. Lips that were defiantly sealed were suddenly gasping for breath to sing out without a care for who heard. I'm not a super emotional person by nature, and this is not an experience that had ever happened before in my life and has honestly never happened since then. Um, But I don't know how I knew, 
but I just knew in that moment that that was my, um, you know, as I was sitting there overwhelmed by the fullness of my humanity, that that was the answer to my prayers. That was my lightning and thunder and grace. I am God moment. I remember the worship song that was playing in that moment as well, kind of like a soundtrack to a movie, if you will. And I was singing the words, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That was the moment Jesus showed himself as Lord in my life. And I gave my life to following Christ. And I have never turned back. I initially hesitated to come up here and share. Um, As I mentioned before, I consider myself intellectual and thoughtful and intentional and rational in my life decisions, big and small. Um, And I consider my reason for why I follow Jesus to be extremely underwhelming, not well-researched, not well-constructed, and a bit almost comically naive and simple. It doesn't help that now I attend a church with pastors Omer and Kevin, who, you know, their sermons sometimes seem closer to a thesis in defense of a PhD in, you know, philosophy than a casual Sunday in the pews. Um, But as I reflected on it more, I actually think that there's something incredibly affirming and indicative of God's character in the way that he brought me to him. Me being someone wired to consider things primarily logically, I think that he knew that it would um, not be an intellectual reckoning that would capture my attention, but an emotional and a spiritual one. So to summarize for me, why Jesus? Um, Because I believe that there's something innate in my being within the depths of my soul that responds to the divine in a way that I cannot explain, predict, rationalize, or restrict It shows up when my heart quakes in response to a particular prayer or when only a gentle spiritual reminder from Jesus is able to loosen my own stubborn grip on resentment, anger, and frustration. And I suddenly feel empowered to show up with forgiveness, grace, and love. Or when a simultaneous joy and heartbreak bursts out as my entire existence seems to sing out in worship. Or how my life never feels as ferociously set ablaze as it does when I know I'm doing work of the kingdom here on earth. It's been many years of following Jesus now, and more things have changed in my understanding of my faith and have stayed the same. And there have been higher highs and lower lows than I could have possibly imagined and envisioned. But this part of my faith experience has never wavered. The unshakable part of me that longs for more than this world can provide and seems to only quiet itself in reverence in the presence of Jesus. And I think it's because it's the undeniable moving of a soul that happens when creation recognizes its creator. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Grace. That was beautiful. Thank you. Woohoo! Um, Thank you all for continuing to come and join us here on Sunday afternoons at Spark Church. We're so glad you're here, and it's my joy and honor to join in this Fruit of the Spirit series. Now, last week you saw me put Kevin on the hot seat. Um, I'm really glad to be here with you all and join on in this series. And thanks to all the teachers and pastors who've been um, helping us along this journey. I don't think I have a PhD thesis for you tonight, Grace, so sometime, but not tonight, we'll be all set. Yay? Okay, good. I really actually loved everything you shared, and it works quite well with what I think the Lord's put on my heart this evening, so thank you so much. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for inviting us to this space today and inviting us to become aware of your presence here in in our midst, um, in us. 
We ask right now that you would tune our hearts and our ears to you, to become aware of you within us, within us collectively, that this time too would be worship um, and centered and focused on you. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so just for context, let's continue to remind ourselves of what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians. I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning, but if you have not read it or you're not quite sure what the context of this letter is to a place called Galatia, then grab hold of Kevin's opening sermon on this series a few weeks back to sort of get some of that context. I don't know if that's helpful, but a lot of times when we enter into biblical studies or just show up at a church and somebody starts preaching, for a very long time in my life, I just thought like Corinthians was a fancy Bible word that Christians were supposed to know, and I didn't know it was a place, Corinth, and that it was a letter written by a guy, Paul, in this case, to a lot of people who lived there. And I remember being in high school going, oh, California, Californians. Corinth, Corinthians, so here we're going to, Galatia, Galatians, okay? Not fancy Bible word, not some insider knowledge, it's an address to a group of people. Now, for some context, I'm going to back all the way up to 513, even though the verse that we're kind of focused on is 522. For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love, serve one another. For the whole Torah is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on snapping at each other and tearing each other to pieces, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. What I'm saying is this. Live by the Spirit, and then you will not do what your old nature wants. For what the old nature desires is contrary to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is contrary to the old nature. They oppose each other so that you find yourselves unable to carry out your good intentions. But if you're led by the Spirit, then you are not in subjection to the system that results from perverting the Torah into legalism. And it is perfectly evident what the old nature does. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things have no share in the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nothing in the Torah stands against such things. Moreover, those who belong to the Messiah Jesus have put their old nature to death on the stake, along with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Uh, That translation comes from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David Stern, a uh, messianic Jewish believer of blessed memory, just passed away a few months ago in Jerusalem, and you can go and grab that translation online. I used it because of a few things. Um, When we see this conversation, particularly back here, oops, sorry, going too fast, We want to remember that this whole section, as Kevin talked about at the beginning, is about this freedom that some of the Christ followers are claiming that they are free from the observance of the Torah, specifically the works of the law that Kevin talked about when we talk about those things that were ethnic identifiers for the Jewish people. And I think when we hear 
flesh and spirit, we tend to move today into areas of Gnosticism, dividing out the human between spirit and flesh and acting as if those things aren't joined. And so what I really like what David Stern has done here is he talks about behavior and living by the spirit, and then he says, this is what your old nature is, as opposed to saying flesh. Because we know what he means, because Kevin did a great job telling you about that. But the way that we talk about the body versus the spirit in Western culture, we divide those things and don't see us, ourselves as a whole. Paul did not divide us. And so what he's talking about here is sort of our old way of living prior to knowledge and, and walking with Christ and doing instead what God has called us to do. And that if we're led by the spirit, we're not in subjection to that system. And here's what he talks about that results from the perverting of Torah into legalism, not suggesting that the law in itself is bad, but that we have made it a tool for judgment and legalism rather than a tool for life. Okay? So if the translation sounded weird to you or, or new, it's from the complete Jewish Bible. So our focus this week is on gentleness. And the Greek word for it, prautus. We were, t- we were practicing this earlier. I'm not as good at Greek as I am at the Hebrew. Um, is very rare. It actually doesn't occur in a whole bunch. It occurs much more in the New Testament than it does in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And in the Septuagint, it doesn't occur in the places we always think it might occur. So I don't have anything really interesting to tell you about that. That's all I am. It's just letting you know. I did a study and I didn't get very far. Okay? Good. But we know it means gentleness, but it also has sort of the connotation of maybe humility, um, something like that in it. So gentleness, humility, a courtesy, sort of deferring one to another. Now, I mentioned last week that whenever we talk about the fear of the Spirit, or we talk about seeing characteristics of Christ in somebody's life, or the presence of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, I'm always wanting to shout, fruit check, aisle 12. I would like to see when somebody's out there claiming in big, loud voices oftentimes with like hammering fists, the truth of Jesus, which I may actually 100% agree with and resonate with, but lacking the fruit of the Spirit, I want to say, where is that? Let's do a fruit check, okay? Now, I want to note that in this passage, fruit is not plural. Paul is not saying these are the fruits of the Spirit, and you can pick which one you like, and then you could just decide to be the tree called self-control and forget about love. They're actually, it's a single fruit, so it's more like this okay, or whatever artistic rendering all of you can imagine in your head. It is a singular fruit, and so when we are looking for the life of a follower of Jesus to be evident about the presence of Christ, the Spirit dwelling in, we're looking for all of these things. Now, that being said, while making this presentation, I was getting frustrated and lost self-control at least once, because my thing wasn't working the way I needed it work, and at least did not have some gentleness of words. So we aren't suggesting that when you don't do all of these things in concert all at the time, 100% of the time, that somehow you've decided to not follow Jesus that day. This is just a singular fruit that is looking for all of these things. And you'll remember in the context of the passage we just showed you that Paul has listed a whole bunch of things you shouldn't do too. And nobody's suggesting that you would be expected to be drunken and envious and attending the occult practices all at the same time. Although maybe, 
perhaps. All of those things could go hand in hand. Now, when we talk about gentleness, I think the first thing that I hear as a educator with kids for a very long time is gentle hands, gentle hands, gentle hands. Because if you've worked for five seconds with a toddler in the toddler room, uh, any nursery, you're always shouting, gentle, 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 because, or you hold a baby for like two minutes and then earrings and necklace and glasses and hair and all the things and you're like, gentle, gentle. Or if you've ever watched Princess Bride, gentle. And if you don't know what that means, go watch the movie, it's great. So all of those things might resonate, always comes back to Princess Bride, always, always. Um, how to teach children to be gentle, gentle hands. Remember when we would have like the first encounter, sometimes little kids will come to my house and I have two small dogs and of course they just want to uh, like grab those dogs and my dogs do not like that. And so I'm telling everybody to be gentle, right? Gentle, gentle, everyone's gonna be gentle. What does Paul mean when Paul talks on gentleness? Let's ask Paul, Paul's self. So let's pick up Colossians. He talks about how as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with feelings of compassion and with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is a characteristic that Paul expects to be present in the Colossian community as well. Colossae, another place. Um, he is anticipating conflict. Surprisingly, I know you're shocked by this, conflict occurs in the church. Really, I know. We shouldn't have any because we saw the list and those shouldn't be here and then the other list should be here, but Paul is addressing a lot of communities in conflict. Not you, but people in your row. Other people. So... <laughs> He'll say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which do you prefer when he talks about coming at you with conflict? Should I come to you with a stick? Or would you prefer me to come with a love and spirit of gentleness? So Paul is already like, listen, I've already tried the stick method with a lot of you. It's not worked, so I'll try gentleness. Although I have to say, after reading some of Paul's letters, I'm convinced stick was still his favorite and first go-to <laughs> that he would use right away. And, um, and I often... Uh, appreciate that. So I didn't always, but I'm in a place right now. But where I'm like, yeah, that, that stick works. I like that. But it's, it doesn't, right? So he's like, what do you prefer? Stick, loved spirit gymnasts. Okay, so the Corinthians, who were notoriously in, in need of maybe a sit down, um, they appreciated, I'm sure, the gentleness that Paul, by the way, if that's Paul gentle, dear God, um, what might it look like if he had forgotten that virtue? Um, this actually, in anticipating conflict and trying to sort through conflict, is talked about all the time in conflict resolution communities. So the Gottman Institute, of which Kevin and I are big fans, and they do all this wonderful relationship work, individual counseling work, all the things, go and find it, science-based, we love it. They talk about how the anecdote to criticism within a relationship or, or issue is a gentle startup. You start with, I'm feeling and I need to, as opposed to, you always do this and I can't stand it anymore, right? So the anecdote right away to conflict is instead of barging right in and saying all things you're mad with is you start with the I feeling statements. Now, a lot of us mistake that to say, I feel that you suck, right? So that's not the gentle startup that they're talking about, right? So instead it has to go, I feel and I need in different things, right? So I think the Apostle Paul knew this science of the Gottman Institute too. I'm sure they had a letter to the Corinthians as well. And so he says things like, as the apostles of the Messiah, we could have made our weight felt. Like we could have come in with that big stick, but instead we were gentle when we were with you, like a mother feeding and caring for her children, 1 Thessalonians 2.7. And I know 
that all of you out there who are convinced that Paul is a misogynist are now shocked to find out that Paul says, I am like a nursing mother. So he says this and he has invited us all to embrace that image. He's gentle with it. And he's leaning on ancient wisdom that is present in the Hebrew scriptures, right? So let's grab Proverbs 25, 15. With patience, a ruler may be run over, won over, and a gentle tongue can break bones. Now that can sound like, wait a second, that's like so the opposite that I'm doing, but I think Paul's going, no, 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 I've decided and, and understood what works best is actually gentleness, and I can still get across what I need to get across. Like it still works. Or maybe we can go further into Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle response deflects fury, but a harsh word makes tempers rise. That's like just common sense, isn't it? And it goes back to the criticism starts a conflict right away where that gentle startup with the I feel, although I don't think Paul used to like a lot of I feel statements with the Corinthians or the Galatians. I mean, he says things like, who's bewitched you? Have you lost your mind, right? But maybe that gentle startup is a little bit of what he has in mind. When we even continue on in the letter, past Galatians 5.22 into Galatians 6.1, he says this. My brothers and sisters, if anyone is detected in a transgression, like they're doing something wrong, you who've received the spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And it seems that Paul understands that gentleness builds a bridge instead of tearing the gap wide open. Gentleness tries to build that bridge between the people of conflict as opposed to just going in and pushing it further and further and further. Your uh, computer has just noted that it has low battery and is about to shut down, just as a little. And that's my I feel statement that the computer is upset um, and needs me to do something. Thank you. So I think this gentle startup idea, this gentleness idea is also Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter here, chapter two. Flee from the passions of youth, he tells Timothy, and along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love, and peace, but stay away from stupid and ignorant controversies. It's very nice, gentle. Um, You know that they lead to fights, and a servant of the Lord shouldn't fight. You know, guys, if we just took that first verse and applied it to social media, just in our lives, that verse, wouldn't it be better? I'm serious. I know so many lovely, wonderful Christians who cannot stay away from stupid and ignorant controversies that they know lead to fights and a servant of the Lord shouldn't fight. But let's move on. On the contrary, one should be kind to everyone, a good teacher, not resentful when mistreated, and also he should be gentle as he corrects his opponents. So it's not, gentleness is not the absence of conflict. It is not the absence of criticism or correction. It is not even the absence of, it it is not the laying down of your own needs. It's not a submission to just say, oh, well, that's fine. You can walk all over me. Paul is saying that we should be gentle when we are correcting our opponents. For God, and here's the reason why, God may perhaps grant them the opportunity to turn from their sins, acquire full knowledge of the truth, come to their senses, and escape the trap of the adversary after having been captured alive by him to do his will. Gentleness in Paul's letters, and even in the book of Proverbs and other places throughout scripture, seems to be there for the purpose of repentance, reconciliation, healing, restoration. Not so that you can be a doormat or I can be a doormat. Not so that we ignore the deep sin in the community that needs to be corrected. 
but so that it actually can be changed. And isn't this the way of Jesus? I mean, Jesus notoriously has that very gentle look about him, right? In all of our pictures with the white, blue-haired, blonde-eyed Jesus that didn't exist, right? He's from Northern Europe. Um, He's always got a lamb. Um, And the lamb's really lovely because Jesus said things like, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I think that part's really true. Get rid of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, North European Jesus, right? But the invitation to come and find rest, the invitation to know that the way of Jesus, that Jesus himself is gentle. Now, that does not mean that Jesus does not have harsh words and criticisms or conflict, but that there is also a gentleness mixed in there. And this is hard for us because I think we don't, we don't really understand how those two things can occur at once. In fact, one time I was teaching um, and somebody got so mad at me. It's not the first or last time. I was teaching on Jesus standing up and in a loud voice shouting in the temple from the Gospel of John. It's a lovely story. I'll tell you another time. And this woman came and said, no, Jesus doesn't shout. And, well, but I'm just reading here, shouting. No, no, my Jesus is gentle, like a lamb. I'm like, yeah, but sometimes he shouted too. But we've confused gentle with soft and cuddly as opposed to something that comes in with that gentle startup, with the hope of a changed life, with the hope of bringing us to full restoration and reconciliation within the community. So maybe when we think of gentleness, we think of holding something very fragile, and we think of trying to, trying to take care of it. And I find that being gentle to something small, like a little bird, is so easy. We just know intrinsically not to crush that bird. By the way, I am like recently bird whisperer. I just have to let you know. I saved like five birds in like two month period and I was very proud of myself, including one that was stuck in the date palm room and Debbie and I was like, wait, I got this. Cause I was like on bird six at this point. And so I walked in and I just looked at it and I talked to it, I was trying to get out. I was like, I'm going to help you. And I just held my arm and I swear the thing just popped right in and I just carried it right outside. It's like gentle, man. So it's super easy to be the gentle whisperer when it's a tiny little bird. But it's very hard to be gentle when we are with equals or when with somebody who has more power than we do, isn't it? It's really easy to be gentle with a little kid. It's hard to be gentle to a spouse. It's very easy to be gentle to somebody who is crying It's hard to be gentle when we don't see their face because we're on some social media interaction. And we're just continually addicted to Lord algorithm, right? So what do we do? How do we embrace gentleness when we're with equals, when we're angry and we are right? Like, we're very right. I'm very right, and I need everybody to know it, right? How do we do it then? So it's no surprise, my hero, Mr. Rogers, been my hero since I was a little kid, loved this, loved, had all his records. A record is a black disc <laughs> that you used to put on a, a turntable, okay. Um, so had all of his records. Um, and there's this fantastic magazine article by Jean Marie Laskus, uh, 
American journalist and also was a companion of Mr. Rogers and his family co a co-worker. Uh, she wrote this, Mr. Rogers, no one saw. Mr. Fred Rogers wasn't just a brilliant educator and a profoundly moral person, he was an uncompromising artist. Now, when I think of Mr. Rogers, I think gentle, right? You think so gentle, you might not be able to hear him because everybody's always having to lean into the, the quiet, gentle, present space of Mr. Rogers. And when, I don't know if you know this, you know Mr. Rogers was a Christian and he was ordained in, in the church. When he was ordained, uh, Reverend Bill Barker gave him this charge on his ordination in the United Presbyterian Church in 1963. He said to Fred, we charge you to shake us through a God who involves himself in our world, into the world where he already is. The world of TV cameras, of puppets, of children, of parents, of studios, of directors, of actors, this too is God's world. We as the church charge that you speak to us to disturb us. We charge you to speak to us to remind us that we too, through you, must be involved. And I think he did that. I think he did shake us. And I think he did remind us, but it sure wasn't forceful, was it? It was gentle, but it was important work. And he famously said that the space between his mouth and another person's ears is holy ground. And he was so present in the moment that his staff always had difficulty getting him to the next thing on time. Because he would stop in each moment and be there. I don't know if you've ever watched, Kevin and I watched the documentary years and years ago. If you watched his interview with Joan Rivers on The Tonight Show, she's filling in for Johnny Carson. And, and, and she's so unnerved because she can't deflect at all. He's just zeroed in on her and he's like, it's you I like, Joan. She's like, yeah, but let's. And he's like, no, it's not the clothes you wear. It's not the funny jokes you tell. And she's like, <laughs> you see, because she's being seen. It's gentle and it shakes. Now, during a fundraising time of campaign for George W. Bush, and Fred Rogers was notoriously a pacifist and very, very angry at the war, um, he was coerced, invited, because several friends were going to be there to be at an event where they were going to be raising funds for George W. Bush's new election campaign, and, and Fred didn't really want to go. But he stood up in that place, and he told everybody about God, and he tried to hold that characteristic, and then he ran out of the room. And this woman, who was, who's his friend, went up and said, what are, you, what are you doing? And he said, well, I wasn't about to participate in any fundraising or anything else. But at the same time, I don't want to be an accuser. Other people may be accusers if they want to. That may be their job. I really want to be an advocate for whatever I find is healthy or good. I think people don't change very much when all they have is a finger pointed at them. I think the only way people change is in relation to somebody who loves them. I think that's such a beautiful definition of what I, I, I think Paul is going for when he talks about gentleness. Not just in Galatians' letter, but in the others. I don't think he's saying this is the place where you just lay down your own morals or your own integrity or your own conviction. I think this is the place where you figure out with winsome gentleness being led by the Spirit, how you can bring about change. You see, in conflict, in our life, in our community, in our church, in our country, we have many options, don't we? We can go into legalism and exacting rules. We're very good at that. 
us Christians, um, us humans. We're good at judgment, we're good at criticism, we're good at doubt. We can spend our life criticizing everyone, including ourselves, feeding that rage machine. And, and a lot of us do this. This is our MO and we find, and, and I have done this in seasons too. It's actually kind of easy, right? You can open up the news and you can get real mad real quick. And you know, we all have the famous things that'll push the button to push us to a place where if we were, even if it's somebody with us, we get to a place where we are at between eight to 10 and probably of no good to anybody in that moment. But this author of this article, she says this, critical thinking was her thing. She went to college, she had been Catholic before, and then goes to college, she goes, now I'm a, it's at first a mind-expanding drug, you deconstruct your thoughts, you doubt yourself, you doubt everything, you attack your thoughts, attack everyone else's. Skepticism became the badge of honor, but for me, it all led to a kind of sourness, a distrust of anything soft, of beauty, of silence, of love. This has been my experience too. Right? When I go into the places where all I want to do is argue and doubt and fight, I don't find myself in a place where there's life or joy or those other fruits of the Spirit that, are, that I'm looking for. Wendell Berry in his book, Sabbath Poems, he expresses this too. He's like, anger at humans, my own kind. I remember how it carried me. Joyous in self-exaltation. Self through a narrow opening as at birth into the great hollow of the dark itself where the unappeasable and unending revenge for revenge tread each alone the circle of no known beginning or end, and that is hell. When we have conflict, we're so quick to be in places where we just circle the drain. A path with no beginning or end, a living hell, where we don't know how to sort through that conflict. Paul's answer, God's answer, is gentleness. When the conflict comes, we seek gentleness. Another fantastic example of this is Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he saw gentleness as strength. There were these 10 commandments of nonviolence that all of the participants in Birmingham and the desegregation of the lunch counters and the bus boycott and all of this, they had to practice these things. And I'm gonna read them to you because I'm not sure if you can read them. And I'm gonna say, they daily read this card, carried this card, signed this pledge. Here are our 10 commandments of nonviolence. I hereby pledge myself, my person and my body to the nonviolent movement. Therefore, I will keep the following 10 commandments. One, meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. I think this is really important, actually. I don't think you can do this gentleness thing unless you're starting with some meditation, some mindfulness, some grounding on the one and the way that led and lived this differently. Second commandment, all, remember always that the nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all people might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all people might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. With your enemy, courtesy. Do you hear like that gentle 
lead there, the gentle opening. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health and follow the directions of the movement and of the captain on a demonstration. This, by the way, is not, I don't think, suggesting in any way that the conflict doesn't need to be resolved. The whole thing is set up so you can go have the conflict and have it in such a way that you see change occur. The pursuit and the discipline of this community changed everything. You know that the primary complaint of all the people who were those disruptors and protesters in that movement in Birmingham was that they had too many meetings. It was just so itching, ready to get out there to start protesting right away. But Martin Luther King's strength to love movement, gentleness move, pursuit of nonviolence movement knew that that would just create more conflict. When we're in our anger places and we just go out there and we're not in the place where we can start to just be very disciplined, just more conflict gets created. But nothing about this way is not strong. In fact, it's so much stronger. It takes so much more discipline, so much more effort and work to choose the way of love and of gentleness, to refuse to demonize the person standing in front of you, but instead to try to seek out their good too. This is so hard. And the reason why they had all those meetings was because they acted it out. They practiced non-reactive space. Can you believe this? They stood in church basement after church basement, stood up there and said, okay, here's going to be the lunch counter, and here are the people who are going to come up and desegregate it, and here's going to be the server, and here's going to be the policeman, and here's going to be the, and we're all going to come in, and you're going to be some angry white folk, and you're just going to come in and start yelling and cursing, and you're going to flick cigarette butts at them, and, you're going to, and they all practiced the gentle insistence that things change the non-reactive insistence. And you know what else they had to practice, which I just cannot, I mean, just the wisdom of this. And Gandhi did this too, and others did. I mean, this is a lot of the work of nonviolent disruption when we see injustice. They practiced empathy for each person in that. And they asked questions like, what's that fear and the longing of the woman who's gonna just try to serve pie? How's she feeling? Because the way for everyone who's disrupting the injustice to stay human is to remember with empathy that the person on the other side is enslaved too. And so this work is hard. And it only comes with practice. This fruit of the spirit is hard. It requires prayer. It requires practice. It requires intentionality. It requires strength. And it requires that we start first by being gentle with ourselves, knowing that Christ is gentle with us, and then gentle with the other. It's hard. It's really hard. Gentleness is not something I'm great at, to be fair. I kind of, for a very long time, saw the strength being like, put on your heels, your kick butt heels, and like go in and be argumentative and 
have all the right answers. I was pre-law in college. So, you know, like have, but I saw early on in myself, I was gonna become a really nasty person in that pursuit. There's so much power to be had and grabbed and forced. And it still comes out, by the way, I get super irritated at different things. Um, some things justified and some things not. Some things really holy, right? Like, oh, she, that's so great that she's so angry. Righteous indignation and anger at that injustice and look at her go. And other times I'm just, you know, angry at my computer and frustrated, right? But the, the gentleness is hard. Now, I, I think when we talk then about all of this, we're looking back at that fruit check. Jesus said that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So, we have that gentle statement of Jesus, right? But we also have things like this in Matthew 7. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. I think that's, though, very true, isn't it? And my prayer for Spark, for us as individuals and as a community, is that people will look at us and go, fruit check. And when they look at us, they'll say, ah, yeah, you know, they are standing up for injustice. They're standing up as allies for the transgender community, for the LGBTQI community, for anyone marginalized, for racial justice, for they're standing against Islamophobia, they're standing against anti-Semitism. You know why we're doing those things is because we see everyone as our neighbor. And Jesus told us very clearly to love our neighbor. So I hope that when people see us, they see that good fruit. But I know that there's other times that spark will fail. We collectively together, and that's why we all need Jesus, thank God, right? We all need a savior. We talked about confession of sin last week. We all know that's gonna happen. I need to do it on a daily basis. But I do think as we do the fruit check, we're not just talking about, am I personally gonna be more gentle tomorrow because I heard a good sermon about it at Spark? I hope so. But you know what? I'm gonna forget about that sermon by Thursday and Friday. I'm not gonna be gentle. My hope is that as a community, we sort of, grab hold of teachings like from Bell Hooks here. I'm often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little to the practice of love within the context of community, right? When we look at fruit of the spirit, we're not just looking only at how do we individually, how do I individually become more loving or kind or self-controlled or gentle? All those things are good, but it also has to be something that we're discussing as a community together. How does spark become more gentle in our space? And I'll be honest, I'm not great at that because I get super mad and particularly I get most mad at the other people who are my sisters and brothers in Christ who I disagree with and I have not always had the gentle start, the gentle lead. I might not be super confrontational about it but in my mind, I'm super judgy and I need to work on that. And you start instead with a lot more of love and compassion, that whole fruit together. I think gentleness means together we're going to practice love and humility and forgiveness and patience for the sake of a radical, spirit-led, fruit-filled, collective lived experience. And fortunately, the good thing is that this is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, the host. And this is fully taken out of context and terrible spark practice that we don't do very often, but I like it nonetheless, okay? Zechariah 4, 6. Because I do think that that's true, and I think that that's what Paul is saying. So when you go back to Galatians, you'll find that Paul's gonna say, this is about how we walk by the Spirit, and how we're led by the Spirit, and how we live by the Spirit, and how we're keeping in step with the Spirit. 
This is about us laying down our lives and following the one who says to us, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. My, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The spirit of Christ compels us to seek out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control in our life, in our community. And I think we should see these things in the life of the church, the whole big collective church. I think we should look out and say, that church, that community of Jesus followers, I can tell that they are pursuing and leaning into the Spirit of God because the Spirit is at work within them and the fruit of that Spirit can be seen in these ways. It's not something one person at Spark can do. It's something we'll all do together. And we'll try to do it more in our households. And in all the times when we fail, which will be in about five minutes for me, We lean back into the one who says, it's okay. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can find rest here. And this isn't going to be by your strong, strong effort. This is going to be by the Spirit. And that's our prayer, isn't it? And as Jesus, that one with that easy and gentle yoke, invites all of us to the table, We remember that table of 2,000 years ago. We remember the table that is here today where Christ is present and welcoming all who are hungry and are thirsty to come. And we look forward to that banqueting table to come when all is set to right. And in the meantime, let's look for some fruit. Lean in to the presence of Holy Spirit in your life, in mine, in this community, this beautiful presence of God here. And we'll, we've got some good marching orders, right? We can just go, okay, what would be the loving, gentle response for the sake of change and reconciliation and restoration and hope? Come to that table. You are known here And you are fully welcomed at this table by the one who made you, calls you by name. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood for the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.